hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Charlie, football is slowly coming back elsewhere in Europe. Are, are we expecting a return to training for Tottenham players this week? Yeah, so they've been doing the individual stuff uh, at the training ground. Um, and we saw Harry Kane and Bergvine uh, were among those back, uh, which is good because obviously they... They were among those who were who were injured um, when play was still going on. Aaron Lamella was there with his new white uh, hair, and yeah, hopefully uh, they'll be training groups this week. But it's um, yeah, we'll probably get more clarity, you know, the various Premier League meetings, etc., this week. But yeah, that that's the plan, hopefully. And it it does feel like with the Bundesliga that the first sort of shafts of light potentially uh, about the Premier League's return happening maybe next month eric lamella looks like ted danson right yes yeah he, he really, really does. does i wouldn't i mean you wouldn't have seen that coming beforehand but he, now he's gone kind of for the silver fox look he is mm. full danson very much so uh james did you watch any of the bundesliga this weekend yeah i watched the the dortmund schalke game um and as i think more or less everybody on twitter said it's very eerie to to watch a game um behind closed doors in this context. Um, it, felt, it felt very different to watching games that you've seen behind closed doors before. Um, Sounded like a swimming pool, I thought. Yeah, I think a lot of people said it was like a sort of five-a-side game at your local uh, at your local <laughs> ledger centre, kind of on the indoor, yeah. Um, you had a, that obviously that echo equality, and it was all a bit strange. And, you know, it was the first live match that I think most people have watched in a couple of months. I know there were some K-League games last week that... Um, some people may have watched five minutes off before getting bored. Uh, before getting bored, which I don't. Know, I certainly did. Um, but yeah, I think I think once once the game kind of got up and running, and it, it was a very strange experience. But it, it was a football match. It didn't. I I don't think it was like this entirely alien uh, game. It, it wasn't like a, a completely different sport. Do you know what I mean? I've seen people kind of suggesting like it was it was like not football, and clearly fans are, are an absolutely integral part of. Uh, of the football experience and that you know, we shouldn't forget that, but uh, at, the, at the risk of kind of being a little bit sensationalist, maybe if games like this don't happen now, a lot of the clubs that these people are supporting aren't going to exist to watch a bit further down the line. Yeah. Who could have predicted that the return of football would prompt so many terrible takes on the internet? I, mean... I thought some of the coverage was... Look, people are entitled to their own opinions. I thought lots of the opinions spouted this weekend were absolute nonsense. Um, the fo- It was football. It was good football. Like It was a chance to Bristol Dortmund, who are one of the most exciting teams in the world, playing really, really well, winning a big game. And I know it was very, very different from what we're used to, but of course it was. Like What else do you expect? Um, it wasn't game, as good, like, but that doesn't mean it's bad, right? Yeah, right. Like you know, Half a loaf is not the same as no bread. And even if it is bad, it's like a necessary evil, I guess. Yeah, completely. Because it's not like, you know, it's not like fans will be, fans won't, you know, fans will not be back in the stadium until there's a vaccine or for a very long time. Like this is, everybody knows this. And to crow on about how, oh, you know, it's not like, it's not like I wanted it to be just seems ridiculous. And to miss how important it is to, that we make compromises right now with what we expected. Like we're not going to go back to February 2020 anytime soon. Um, so yeah, it, how did you guys feel about the having watched that? Did it make you more or less excited for the potential return in the Premier League? I think for the first for the first sort of ten minutes, I was genuinely a bit. I was uncomfortable and worried about what it would be like, and I, and I thought, yeah, I can't imagine watching Tottenham anytime soon. But what, once you kind of get over the original, the kind of initial 
kind of uncomfortableness of it all, then then you can kind of you can kind of start to see a pathway for that for that to happen. But you know, uh, moving away from football for a second, you know, in, in this country we're so far away from what Germany have done in terms of controlling mm. this virus. <clears throat> Um, and, and I don't want to go into too much detail on that because obviously I don't understand it and someone say I don't understand football either um, but it seems pretty obvious that, that, that it's the pandemic has been handled in a totally different way in this country and that you know to, to be a month behind even the Bundesliga is perhaps optimistic yeah I think that's true I mean yeah leaving aside all of uh of the argument of you know when whether it is safe and all of that but i definitely felt you know it doesn't feel unimaginable to to watch that and to get some enjoyment from it and we may we may get used to it reasonably quickly um just because we kind of have to like we don't have if we want as jack says if we want football for a while that probably is going to be the reality so yeah i i i think it's it's possible that we will just you know obviously it's not going to be as good as the real thing but it will be a version and that will be a positive to a certain extent did anybody watch uh england against scotland from euro 96 which was on itv4 yesterday yeah now that that was a worse that was a worse football <laughs> match than, than dortmund schalker i think it was awful i remember that first half being really bad at the time and i only watched bits uh, of it yesterday, and, and it was from that first half, and it and it really was a tough watch. Um, yeah, just very little football that was pleasing on the eye. And in that first half, Scotland w- were a lot better than England. Yeah, Gary McAllister was the best player on the pitch. I um I hadn't obviously I hadn't seen it I hadn't seen it back like to that full extent since it happened, uh, and that was a very long time ago. So I was slightly surprised by how bad England were. No, I was just going to say that generally, I think like a big issue I've had with kind of football replays of this of lockdown is that full games are very very rarely that interesting to watch when you know the score which obviously we are going to know the score because they're going to be from big games like you you might I guess get more texture from it and you can really appreciate what happens but I do think generally highlights or extended highlights are are better um, rather than watching full games one thing that I did enjoy was watching watching Gaza in the context of having read Danny Taylor's fantastic piece about Paul Gascoigne uh, which went live on The Athletic a few days ago and if any if anyone listening hasn't read it I would strongly advise you to read it it is so it's touching and funny and kind of heartbreaking as well at the same time because it's about what Gaza is up to up to nowadays on his uh, basically he does a tour around the country doing talks about his career um and but then it's funny watching the game. Like you see, he just does look even at that stage in 1996. He just looks very different from how how an elite footballer nowadays would look. Mm. James, do you have? I mean, do you do you have memories of Gazza at Spurs? Presumably not quite. No, no. So yeah, Gazza at Spurs is a bit before my time. But Gazza with England in that obviously in the Euro '96 finals and in that World Cup qualifying campaign in uh, for '98, definitely. You know, you could see what a fantastic player he was. And yeah, I, I do feel a bit sad that I didn't get to see him play for Spurs because it's not often that you get a player like that, you know, playing for your club, who's kind of the heart and soul of the national team. I, you know, maybe you can make an argument that Kane had had been that at some point. Um, but yeah, yeah you know, it, it's sad to think that that was his last tournament, really. That, you know, having having played in Italian anti as uh, what was it, kind of like 21, I think. Um 
and, and looking like you know he had it all ahead of him. That was his only World Cup, and then the only other tournament, uh, the only other two tournaments he played with would have been. Oh, did, did he miss ninety two? I think he was injured for ninety two, wasn't he? Yeah, Euros. I don't yeah, I think he missed think that. He was in so that. he went to the two tournaments, which you know, for a player of that ability, is crazy. Really, when you think of, and I won't name names and be disrespectful, but you know, there are there are players a long way off that level with England who have probably gone to four or five tournaments. It's, it's just yeah, it's it's a shame to think that he didn't really have the opportunity to kind of show that incredible talent more regularly at that level. Yeah, like I still remember just the massive issue when he was not taken to France '98 by Glenn Hoddle. Mm. And even at the age of like nine, nine or ten, we like everybody was talking about it and everything. It was, but then I'm sure like it was probably fair enough based on his performances that season because he obviously wasn't anywhere near the same player he was at Newcastle or Tottenham. And he was at Middlesbrough then, wasn't he? He was he was playing in Division One, which feels so strange now that, that a player of that caliber would be playing in the Championship and still be expected to be a shoe in for the England team. But I think was Paul Mer- and Paul Merson yeah. was there as and well, went, yeah, and he so was he in the, squad. the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came on against Argentina, didn't he? Danny's piece on Gaza is fantastic. I would totally recommend you reading it. Um, the other day, I got an email from a listener in the US who said that he you know, he wants to learn more about famous people from Spurs' history and legendary players and managers from before the kind of modern era. You know, the last few years, and I would certainly suggest to anyone in that position, you know, learning as much about Gaza as possible because he really is an iconic figure in English football history. And if you want to read Danny's piece and you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a free 90-day trial by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Now, another piece that's just gone live on The Athletic, which I really enjoyed for Tottenham fans, is about what would, what do we think Spurs' best team will be, presuming that everyone is fit when football resumes next month. Uh, Charlie, this is your piece. Uh, talk us through your eleven. Yeah, so I kind of went through uh, the different areas of the team. And I mean, I, I thought it had to be Lloris in goal, really. I mean, Gazaniga had the, you know, he, he had a, an audition, a three-month audition, really. And I think he was fine, but um, didn't do enough uh, to suggest that right now certainly should replace Lloris. And then back four, I went Aurier, Sanchez, Aldevireld, uh, Ben Davis. I think of those, a lot of people would want Aurier out of the team, um, potentially replaced by Tanganga. I think Aurier's actually had a good season, so I would keep him in. Um, and then midfield, I mean, you know, you can play different formations, assuming Mourinho goes with the 4-2-3-1, that he's generally favoured when uh, he's had, you know, most of his squad available. And and, and that's where it gets a bit tricky in the, the midfield too. I mean, Lo Celso, obviously, you know, one of the first names on the team sheet, and then who you partner him with, um, whether you go... Winks or Sissoko, or whether you go for the more kind of exciting, probably less realistic option of Ndombele. Um, you know, how those two would work would be quite intriguing, um, obviously very exciting. And then I had a three behind Kane of Bergvine on the right, Delhi through the middle, and Son on the left. And again, there you might say, well, uh, what about Lucas Mora? Uh, or you could flip it to a 4 3 3 and bring in a Winks or a Sissoko for a Bergvine, maybe. But, um, I think a few people in the comments said, yeah, it looks like a decent 11, but there isn't enough squad depth. Um, and maybe that is a fair assessment of where this team is and why they've had their moments this season, but why at the moment they're not in the top four or top five. James, what do you think about that team? It seems some controversial omissions, I think. Yeah, I I mean, we, we, kind, of, we kind of touched on this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? I, I, it's difficult to see how you're going to fit 
Le Celso and Dombele <laughs> winks and Sissoko in the team and they're kind of the first three of those are players I would like to see in a Tottenham team and I think Sissoko is sort of necessary really because of the job he does covering the fullbacks. Obviously Kane you're going to have there that back four that Charlie mentioned I don't think you can really deviate from too much on the basis of what's available and what we've seen this season. So yeah it's just a case of working out the balance of that midfield and I don't know whether you could go like a narrow midfield and give Son the freedom to kind of pop up on either wing and ask the fullbacks to get forward maybe but I, yeah I don't know. Uh, I, I, to, to be honest I kind of think this squad is there are a lot of very good players in this squad, but the balance of it is bad. And I think you're probably going to have to sort of sacrifice a decent player to bring in a couple of other better options in a couple of other positions. I mean, I think you probably want a more attack-minded left-back to give you a bit of balance, maybe. Um, you know, I think I made my opinion on REA clear. Over the last few months, I'm, I'm not a massive fan. You know, he does a job and he's a good attacking outlet, but defensively, I don't think he's good enough. Um so yeah, and then whether or not you want a more sort of traditional holder in midfield as well, yeah, it's it's, it's I, I you know when we did this a couple of weeks ago, I found it really really difficult to work out what the team would actually be. That there being injuries actually almost makes it easier, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's hard to come up with a combination that you think is like certainly in the front areas is is perfectly balanced. Like any combination you come up with looks slightly less than some of its parts. I kind of feel like as much as I love Ndombele, I'm not sure I'd have him in the team. Or if I did have him in the team, I wouldn't have him in the two with Lo Celso. Uh, I'd probably more more rather have him maybe with Winks and then push Lo Celso forward and drop one of Bergwijn and Delhi, if uh, depending on the opposition. But I don't know. I can't come up. It's a difficult job, this Charlie, because it's like <laughs> I can't come up with a I can't come up with a combination that I don't think sucks. <laughs> I, I do think that four three three is is very much it would be a very good option for a lot of games. Um, you know, where you need to be a bit more solid. It kind of feels like to, to make it functional, you need to leave out, leave out like a really good player to bring in someone who's may, maybe not quite at that level. Do you know what I mean? Just to kind of make it all work. Yeah, and it does really, it just also underlines like that Mourinho does have a really difficult job um, at the moment because it's not like there is, there just isn't a, a kind of ready, a ready-made team that's good to sort of plug and play, is there? Like it's quite... Um, yeah, it's just difficult. It's like a jigsaw. Pu- it's like he's trying to make a jigsaw out of like two different puzzles. He's got hmm. like one of a, one of a like a beach and one of a castle, and he's trying to put them all together. <laughs> but you can't put that you can't put them together because they're just different jigsaw puzzles. That might be nonsense, but that's just the first thing that came into my head. Um, anyway, works. Charlie, you've also you're doing a piece on who are Spurs' best managers of the decade apart sorry of the century apart from Pochettino, who would be the obvious answer. Yeah, I felt if we included Pochettino, that would possibly be the shortest article in athletic history. So it, we've excluded him. And obviously Mourinho is still kind of active, so he's not in the mix. Um, so yeah, it's best Spurs manager since 2000. And yeah, well, it's, I mean, Redknapp and Yol feel like the obvious front runners. Uh, and I think, you know, different different people have different views on that. Redknapp has the Champions League qualification uh in his corner, which is kind of the gold standard for any Spurs manager in this period. So on that basis, you'd, you know, you'd give it to him, especially as then they backed that up by reaching the quarterfinals, having that amazing two-legged win over Milan. Um, Martin Yol has the advantage of being the guy who kind of laid the foundations for that. And, and it was interesting. I'd forgotten how, I mean, Spurs 
when he so he took over in 2004 a few months into that season in three of the four previous seasons Spurs had finished in the bottom half and they'd finished 14th in 03-04 I mean they really were kind of entrenched in mid-table often lower mid-table and he really did move the dial like his first two seasons his only two full seasons in charge they came fifth obviously very very close to getting fourth in 05-06 and did change the expectation I mean that um, 05-06 was the first time Spurs had qualified for Europe through their Premier League position which seems kind of crazy now where you know qualifying for Europe is the absolute minimum requirement like if you got Europa League you'd be pretty devastated so you know he he really did change the picture um so on that basis does he have more of a claim and then a a third option potentially or well possibly fourth if we include Tim Sherwood who we eulogized over in our podcast a few weeks ago uh would be uh, Andre Villas-Boas who I think a lot of people would dismiss and think that's quite a strange shout but his one full season he got 71 points, which was more than anyone else besides Pochettino in the Premier League era. It's more points, I think, than the, the title-chasing Poch team of 2015-16 got. Um, and it was under uh, Villas-Boas that Gareth Bale really exploded. And obviously, he'd had good seasons the previous two seasons, but I think he got 11 goals and 12 goals uh, in the previous two seasons, then got 26 under Villas-Boas. So, you know, clearly a huge improvement there. So... Uh, you know, and then it didn't work out for him in his second season. But that summer, they did lose Bale and brought in seven first-team players. So, <clears throat> again, I think slight mitigating circumstances. But th- they were the three. I mean, you you could also argue for if <laughs> maybe quite a tenuous argument, but Juan de Ramos is the only one to have uh, won a trophy of those of those managers. So maybe he deserves a shout too. But yeah, what do you guys think? It's interesting because I, uh, you know. John and Redknapp, I suspect, would be like the popular choices of the ones you mentioned if we discount um, Poch. Uh, but AVB, I mean, it's like a totally different personality. And I mean, John and Redknapp are kind of quite similar personalities. They're kind of avuncular, arm around the shoulder, focusing more on like man management than, than tactics, I think it's probably safe to say. Um, which isn't to say that either of them were, were dreadful tactically necessarily, but I don't think it was like their forte. Whereas AVB, uh, uh, I think we've discussed this before and I don't think it's any secret, it was probably like, like the polar opposite of that in that he was very intelligent, very studious, knew the game really well, but perhaps didn't have, or at that stage perhaps didn't have the, the kind of personality um, or the kind of man management style to to get the best out of a group of players when things weren't going well. And I think that's probably why when when it turned, as it did in that second season, it very quickly kind of nosedived, having been so brilliant the year before. And obviously, as you mentioned, they lost they lost Gareth Bale, which was a big factor in that. Um, but, uh, you know, there were moments under AVB where it did, really did feel like the club were going to do the kind of things that they ultimately did do under Pochettino, perhaps not getting to the, the Champions League final, but certainly becoming a kind of regular Champions League team. So And they and they were one point off qualifying in his only full season. They finished one point behind Arsenal and three behind Chelsea. And I know, you know, it's at that th- those are margins you expect at that kind of top level, but it, it does show that it was still a, it was a good season, you know. They they yeah. it was not a disaster. And even and we talked about it, didn't we? There were only a few points off top 4 when he was sacked. I think maybe 5 points um yeah. in, in December 2013. It, again, it wasn't as if they were 
kind of battling relegation. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I just think, you know, he, and I think we did mention this the other week, he just didn't have the right sort of personality to manage a situation when players were unhappy and journalists were asking difficult questions and he, he couldn't control the room in quite the same way as he did when everyone was eating out the palm of his hand, if you know what I mean. Mm. And it just felt mm. like he just lost control of both in the dressing room and in the press room very, very quickly. And it's, I think it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to turn that around quickly without like winning loads of matches and they just couldn't do that. should say as well on the trophy point, um, George Graham obviously did also win a trophy that was in 99, but um, you know, whether he's in consideration from 2000, I'd say given he was sacked pretty early in that, um, in that century, uh, and as James has touched on before, uh, maybe a bit like Villas-Boas, obviously for different reasons, but he was never kind of taken to the hearts as in, in the way that, say, a Yole or a Redknapp was by Tottenham fans. I have to say, it seems kind of balmy not having Redknapp as the answer to this, doesn't it? Like, he came he came fourth twice. Yeah, you do forget that he came fourth a second time as well, don't you? Yeah, if like if Chelsea had, if Chelsea, you know, if, if, if the ball had bounced differently in that 2012 Champions League final in Munich... Redknapp would have taken Spurs into the Champions League twice, which in, you know, coming up, coming basically straight after the year, the first era of the big four, plus the, you know, a, a group that didn't even include Manchester City is an amazing achievement. I mean, to, to pick a, picking AVB ahead of Redknapp is why I, I was going to say I, is why this country voted leave. Like, that's a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> I, I was I mean, on, <laughs> on Yolda. I, I, I put it to you that there's a, there's not an overlap between those two things. <laughs> if anything, I think you'll find the inverse is true. But on Yol, like, I agree, Jack, that is an amazing turnaround. But Yol went from, I mean, this, I, I do think it's amazing that they were, the the power shift like with regards to Arsenal that in 2004 in that 0304 season Arsenal went unbeaten the whole campaign Spurs finished 14th that Don't season Don't have to go on about it. And uh and Arsenal won the league at White Hart Lane. Within two seasons going into the final day Spurs have shifted all that and gone from 14th to 4th and are ahead of Arsenal and were it not for all that happened on the eve of that West Ham game may well have finished ahead of Arsenal. I think that is an unbelievable turnaround in one and three quarters of a season under Yo. Like that, that to me feels like a an enormous transformation. Uh, Redknapp, what he did was amazing, but I think he was taking a team that by then the dial had shifted thanks to Yo and, and it felt more possible. I know it was the famous two points from eight games under Juan de Ramos, but that was a mass, you know, that was really distorting where that squad was. So I do, I do think Yo, it has a, you know, there's a valid shout for him. Yeah. And also, Redknapp had Modric and Bale, mm. like of of playing at a very, very high level, which obviously makes his job quite a lot easier. Totally, yeah. I mean, that Spurs, that Spurs team that finished um, just fifth in 05 or six had Carrick, who's obviously absolutely outstanding, but um, yeah, not not a superstar in in that kind of way. And Redknapp had Van der Vaart as well. So when is that piece coming later this week? Uh, that will be out on Tuesday morning so as you're listening to this fantastic and like Danny's piece on Gaza uh, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic you can get a free trial for 90 days at theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod one Spurs player who's been in the news for slightly unusual reasons recently is Hyung Min Son who during the course of the coronavirus stoppage has been back in South Korea doing his long delayed military service Charlie What's he been up to and what's he up to right now? Yeah, he's back now from it. Uh, it's finished and he's hopefully going to be in training 
this week as well. So it's it's all coming together quite nicely actually for for Tottenham if and when play does resume because a lot of the players who are out uh, back then are now available. But yeah, so he's been in in South Korea performing. It, it's an abridged version of the military service, uh, and he got this um, reduction for winning the Asian Games. Um, winning a gold medal at the Asian Games that's one of the things that can get you um this this reduction but nonetheless you know it's still pretty um pretty full on what he's had to do I mean the kind of headlines were you're exposed to tear gas uh you you're you're taught to fire a gun and son was apparently top of the class in his group um you know so plenty of you know good marksmen on and off the pitch uh, and then you have to do a kind of 30 kilometer march with a big pack. So it's the sort of stuff that for normal people, uh, in inverted commas, is pretty challenging. I imagine a world-class elite, elite athlete like Son, um, you know, found it perfectly manageable. But yeah, you speak to people who have done this and I did for a piece uh, back in April at the time. And it's, you know, I think it's something that most people get quite a lot out of. You know, you're taken out of your comfort zone. Uh, in theory, your phone's taken away. You're sharing a room with a bunch of other guys. It's you know, it's quite a departure from the kind of luxy life that most elite level Premier League footballers enjoy. So, I think it would have been a really good experience. And also, it came at kind of the perfect time because when else? I mean, Son has played like as much football as anyone over the few years. He's had the most ridiculously full on schedule, partly because of things like the Asian Games. Um, so he hasn't really had a rest and the calendar's so jam-packed that it was going to be pretty tricky to squeeze this in. So it kind of came at a good time for him. Uh, he comes back fully fit and I think the understanding was that he would be doing uh, additional fitness exercises as well, um, you know, in line with his program from Tottenham as much as he could. I mean, he's extremely diligent, very, very fit guy. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> quite a um, a departure from... The kind of you know sitting on exercise bikes and running around the garden that most of his teammates have been doing. This is such an interesting story to me because Son is more famous, I think, in Korea than we can really imagine. Like he's more famous than anyone is in the UK, for example. Uh, he is, you know, the whole a lot of the time when Son goes back to Korea in normal circumstances, you know, bits of the country have to shut down. If he's, you know, there's, I heard a story recently about him. He went to a uh, a shopping centre in Seoul and they had to close it because there were just too many people there trying to see him. And he really is a huge, huge cultural phenomenon there. Uh, so and we be... see it here, don't we, as well, Jack? Like, uh, you know, you go to a Mourinho press conference and there will always be uh, a line of Son Jung min fans outside the training ground as we go in or you go to games and... Uh, and there are always lots of fans there. I mean, there was a sad. I did a piece on this early in the season when a bunch of fans had come over for the Champions League game against Leipzig, followed by the Chelsea game a few days later, and that was when Son got injured. So they'd sort of made this pilgrimage to see him, and then and then he wasn't there. But yeah, I mean, I was told um, he just edges, edges other national treasures, uh, K-pop group BTS, and uh, the director of Parasite. Uh, Bong Joon-ho is the kind of the foremost national treasure in in South Korea right now. Yeah, I was I was going to mention BTS. Uh, I don't. I'm not really that familiar with their work though. No. Um, but the thing about Son is, I kind of feel like even though by playing in the Premier League for Tottenham, he is 
you know, he is exposing himself to a huge level of fame in the sense that his games are shown around the world. And certainly in South Korea, people say that, you know, the bars are are full of people watching Son play for Tottenham. And on the Korean sports channels, they will just show endless Son clips and Spurs highlights all day. So clearly in one sense, Son is exposing himself to this huge fame and spotlight. But I also think that away when he's not playing football he doesn't really court this in the UK at all like he lives quite a private life in London uh which I think is probably best for him in terms of making the most of his career on the pitch but everybody knows that he's very close to his father who I think has a very very big influence on his career now he said that he won't get he's not going to get married until he's finished playing but even then I think that is that that in itself allows him to continue to be more popular in career like there are stories of other Korean players like I think it was Key who who was himself a huge phenomenon in his early 20s and then became less popular with his fans in Korea when he got married so it's very it's clearly a very controlled life that Son's living on that theme um Park Chu Young who played for Arsenal he kept delaying his national service on kind of technicalities and it went down really badly um and his reputation then never really recovered from that so when people say you know would Son of managed to find an exemption anyway, even without the Asia Games win. The sense is that he would have been very reluctant to do that because it would have gone down incredibly badly. Um, and, and I think his standing in South Korea is very important to him. But obviously that would have meant doing like a 20-month um, version of the National Service, which suddenly is a, a huge decision to make when you're you know, a world-class footballer. The thing about Son is that while he is he's so good now and has been for the last few years... Just looking back on his first season at Spurs, James, he wasn't really he wasn't really the player he is now, was he? No, I mean, I, I mean, for the first couple of seasons, really, I think you'd probably say he was like a a squad player, really. I mean, he certainly wasn't like a star player. I mean, to my mind, not really until sort of seventeen, eighteen. I don't think. I don't really have memories of him being like one of the star players at White Hart Lane. Did you know what I mean? It kind of felt like that first season he scored four goals in the Premier League. He was one of the players in that game at Newcastle, the, the last game of the season, where. You know, on the back of having lost out on the title to Leicester, they they kind of binned it off a little bit. The attitude wasn't quite right, and they lost five one at Newcastle, and it was all a bit humiliating. And I think I, I think this is mentioned in Pochettino's book. T- tell me if I'm wrong, but that Son was one of the players that Pochettino was most annoyed with after that. Um, yeah, and that they're, they're knowing there was a possibility he was going to leave, and then in sixteen seventeen, as we have talked about many times on this podcast, was a season where. They kind of shifted to a back three with Walker and Rose as wingbacks, effectively, or as wide midfield players. And again, then Son wasn't really a, like a regular starter in the strongest team, and I think you'd say then either. Though, can I shock you, James, that that was his most prolific goal-scoring season for Spurs, both in all comps and the Premier League? Uh, I think if you look at, I think if you look at the numbers for this season, actually, he was on course for a better goals per game. But that yes, if we're doing it goal, but we're not doing goals per game. You know, we're not extrapolating as, as oh, of the moment. You can't you can't punish him for him for the <laughs> virus. That's not this is like the points can... per game if the Premier League doesn't finish debate. <laughs> yeah, if, who's going to win the Golden Boot if they have to settle it on goals per game? Who's going to win uh, Son's best ever season award? <laughs> yeah, I remember being told by a well-placed source that back in the summer of 2016, after that first season, that Son had. Uh, quote one foot out of the club like he basically it's clear that he wanted to go 
And it's kind of, you know, under those circumstances, players often do go. Like Spurs would have just had to, I guess, presume loan him back to Germany with an option, and that would have been the end of it. So it is impressive how he's managed to make himself an undroppable player. And really, you know, we know because we've discussed this a million times, this has had a huge impact on players like Deli Alley. Because mm. have and I kind of still feel like now, like I don't really know what the best combination between Son and Kane is. Like I think they're both brilliant individual players in their own right, but I don't think they nat- naturally work that well as a partnership. And I wonder whether some of Son's best play has actually come when Kane's out of the team during the various injuries that he's had in the last few years. Is that fair? Like that Champions League run last season. That's when Son's come to the form since Kane has sort of have had these you know, injuries like once or twice a season where he's missed kind of two or three months at a time. The Son has really stepped up as like the central attacking player um, and kind of carried the team through to the extent that they've not missed Kane as much as you would expect to miss a player of that ability. Um, But yeah, you're right. I think the difficulty has always been accommodating Son, Kane and Ali in the team. Uh, For for, for my mind, I think Son's breakthrough is probably the, the, the first Dortmund game at Wembley. In 17-18, I think, we scored two goals. Um, and I think that kind of felt like the first time that he, he felt like like a real superstar in that team and that he was one of the he was one of the players that they could look to to help them win a big game. I mean, and, and to his credit, he has done that he has done that regularly since then. You know, he scored against a lot of a lot of the best sides that Spurs have played. But you know, he, he, if you look at the team that played the Real Madrid game at Wembley, he didn't start, right? Which is probably an indication that even then he wasn't kind of seen as undroppable. He was moved around so much that in 2016-17, FA Cup semi-final at Wembley, he played at left wing back. with. Mm. So it's clearly, yeah, it's been a, I think you're right, James, it has been a long process for him to really get his place in this side. What would you say, Charlie, would be like the standouts on achievements and performances of the last few years? Well, I think, I mean, the way he did make it see you know that he prompted all this movement of fans and i know it's um a lot of people say it's rubbish that not only could spurs play without kane and that's amazing to to be good enough as a forward um that you can make that but there were even some saying they were better without kane because that's how good son was for some periods i'm not saying i agree with that but and i think uh the peak of that was probably that champions league quarter final those two games against man city when he scored the winner uh, in the first leg and then scored two in the away leg i mean that was absolutely massive like clutch um moments for him to step up in the absence of the talismanic kane you know the the top scorer the guy who everyone looked to he really stepped up at that point so much so that yeah people were saying our spurs even better when son plays in as the striker and you know the fact that Delhi had to accommodate him that but those those goals um I think were kind of the peak and another moment I think of is that long-range goal he scored against West Ham at Wembley when I think it was a game where he was getting abused racially as well and you just think like you know the character that he showed there and you know to to score that goal was just a, a really really great moment for him I mean he scored the first goal at the new stadium right which I mean I you know it's it's fairly significant um or very significant I, I do actually think the the second goal he scored at city in the in the Champions League game where he kind of took just cuts inside onto his right foot and bends it around the defender I guess Edison is slightly unsighted in that sort of cliched he's used the defender to deceive a goalkeeper way. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was yeah. the way he's bent that is this. Re- yeah, it's a great goal. I mean, obviously in a in a huge game up to that point, 
the biggest game he had played in for Spurs. Yeah, for me that game really stands out. Like he was, you know, those two, those two away goals at the start of the first half, coming in, you know, pretty quick succession were. That was ultimately what put Spurs through because you know those were the two away goals which allowed them to draw four all in aggregate and go through. Um, it meant it gave them just enough of a footing in the game to stand up to the battering they got from City afterwards. And it felt, uh, it did feel at that point that Son was like, and obviously this is before the Lucas hat trick where Lucas made himself like the great hero of Amsterdam. But it felt at that point like like Son was really the Spurs' best player. Like Son was like on another level of intelligence, precision, decision making, speed. And he was, and the fact that you can decide like a game of that stature against a team like City really marked you out as being, you know, being a really, really world class player. And it kind of got me thinking, and this is like a big, a big question with Son. Like, do you think he is Spurs' best player? Do you think he is better than Harry Kane? Is this like, is this a worthwhile argument to have? I, I wonder, I think if you look at his goal record, and I'm just looking at last season, um, you know, he, he didn't score a league goal until 24th of November. That that uh, an amazing goal that we forgot to mention, actually, the, the Chelsea goal at Wembley. Um, where he's picked the ball up deep and, you know, kind of similar to the Burnley one, he's right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, think it's because, I think it's because Louise's defending is so bad at the end. It, it, well, yeah, yeah. It, do you know what I mean? He kind of, like, just runs out of the way of it. Do you think that goal was better know, than the goal against Burnley? No, I, I think, think Burnley, con- just because, for me, Louise... Yeah, but I think Louis just undermines it. But that's fine. It's funny. It's nothing wrong with comedy. It's not. You're like kind of like a snooty Oscars uh, judge, you know. I, you know, there's nothing wrong with comedy. It's fine. It's True. Worthy. Yeah. Has a time and a place, though. Exactly. Not in Wonder Girls. Wow. Do you think he's better than than Kane, or are we just being are we being unfair on Kane again? I, I wonder whether his ceiling may be slightly higher, but I think he's I think he's a bit more erratic. You know, the fact that. We've highlighted that, I mean, 18 months ago or two years ago, maybe now. A very long period without a goal in the league. Uh, and I think, you know, his last goal in the league last season was was that one against Palace. So there were kind of a few games left after that as well. So uh, he seems to be one of those players who hit a rich, pa- a rich patch of four. And actually, I think he scored six and five before he got injured this season. Yeah, mm, yeah, he, he kind of does it in patches. He doesn't kind of consistently for a season, kind of constantly chip away. We do just get used to Kane's brilliance, don't we? Like we we do yeah. kind of take it for granted. Whereas Son's maybe been on more of an ascent over the last few years. He's which, definitely which more spectacular it... than Kane, I think, isn't it? So I think his best moments are always more eye-catching. Not which isn't to say Kane hasn't done amazing things, but I just think the best things that Son does will kind of be more likely to be like kind of viral clips, for want of a mm. better phrase. Yeah, and I think particularly given the changes in Kane's game over the last few years, like Kane doesn't have quite the same like speed and power that he did maybe like three or four years ago, back when he could kind of run past defenders. And Whereas now yeah. Kane's playing a slightly more restricted game, whereas Son still does have that like explosive athleticism, which makes him slightly more exciting, I think. Yeah, Son's got that explosivity, which is really exciting. But I think the streakiness point is like a really, really valid... Uh, I guess effectively argument against Son being like a true world, world, world class player. Like if you look on Soccer Base, you can see like the goals in which he scored the goal, the games he scored goals in, and they are so bunched. Like they really are mm. bunched. Like in 2017-18, he didn't score after the 11th of March. In 2018-19, he didn't score after the 17th of April. Like there are, he just does go on these big like six to eight week spells of not scoring, and then will score like 
won a game for six games in a row and then he won't score for six weeks like the, that that impression is totally borne out by the evidence the flip side to that is that thing we kind of touched on a little bit before that he has generally managed to time those sweet spots to, to kind of coincide well, it might not be a coincidence i guess so he has kind of hit form at the times when Kane has been out of the team and they've really needed a goal scorer. One thing I love about Son as well uh, is how two-footed he is. And he's improved that so much. He scores so many with his left foot. And that's always, I think, a sign of how how hard a player works almost because that is something you have to train yourself at. Um, and he, he's improved that so much. The fact that he can go either way makes him so difficult to defend against. If you've got someone who's quick and can go either way, that's that's really difficult as a defender makes it so much easier for you uh because that if you know it's like show me show me onto my left foot that's fine he'll he'll take that now um and he scores a lot of goals just really clinical with that left foot yeah it's true and that brings us on to a few reader questions which we're going to rattle through before the end of the podcast one here from eh joe do you think son is the best two-footed player in the world right now there you go uh thinking along similar lines uh, i think he's up there i mean I mean, the best I would probably say is boring, but it's Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, he can do that uh, as well, just to probably a slightly higher level. But that's what I mean about, you know, how it comes down to how hard you work. Because someone like Ronaldo, workaholic, you practice and practice and practice to get your to get your wrong foot better. But I'd say he's Son's definitely one of the best in the Premier League. Um, and I think the number there are some numbers that back that up as well. He scores a lot with his left foot. Here's one from Joshua Ralston for you, James. Is what makes him occasionally infuriating, which is not looking up or making that last pass, also what makes him a lethal goalscorer? Could he improve the former without negatively impacting the latter too much? Yeah. No, I would tend to agree that he kind of needs that in his game, right? He needs it to be a bit more instinctive. I think with the best players, you don't necessarily always want them looking up. You want them to kind of have a sense of where they are, where the ball is, where the other players are. And, you know, naturally, sometimes that, that isn't going to work out. And it, when those things happen, it probably looks like he's greedy, which perhaps he is a little bit. That's kind of what you want in an attacking player, I think. You want it to kind of be, you want him to want to score goals and you want it to kind of all feel natural and, and instinctive. Yeah, and here's the last one from Rob Hellier for you, Charlie. Just how marketable is he? We know he's the Korean Bex, but how valuable is he to the club? And if he's so valuable, why have Madrid, etc., not come in for him? How valuable is he? I mean, yeah, he... I was looking at this. I mean, he turns 28 in July. Um, so he he still has age on his side, you would say, broadly. I mean, he's probably... If he's going to get a big move, it's going to have to come pretty soon. He's an unbelievable shape, so you think he does have a few good years in him. Why have Real Madrid never come in for him? I mean... They haven't really come in for any um, Tottenham players, so it's quite unusual. I mean, obviously, since Gareth Bale. Um, and they might consider he's just below that level of kind of absolute elite that if they wanted to spend huge on, uh, he wouldn't be who they go for. Maybe as well, he is slightly more understated um, than some of the kind of superstars you, you would generally associate with Real Madrid. But... I, I don't think, you know, I think he's definitely good enough to play for anyone in the world. I don't think there's a club that he wouldn't improve. Um, maybe he wouldn't necessarily go into their first choice 11 of every team, but I think he would 
definitely have a shout for most and certainly be a very, very effective player for pretty much everyone. Um, but Spurs know that. And so I don't think they'd be, you know, in, in much of a rush to sell him. I mean, he's, he is so valuable to them. Um, and yeah, I, I think he'd be su- he's such a difficult player to replace as well because to have someone who can play as a wide forward or sort of off a striker or as a striker himself is just so valuable. And we've seen, I think we've seen that so often the way that he could be, you know, a, a Kane replacement at times despite not being considered an out-and-out striker. Yeah, I always thought when, particularly last year when he was playing so well that if, for example, City, you know, if City lose Leroy Sane or if Liverpool were to lose Sadio Mane, then Son would basically be as good a replacement as they could find in terms of he's definitely quick and clever and efficient enough to play for City or Liverpool. I mean, I know when you say this sort of thing, Spurs fans get upset, and I'm sorry, Spurs fans, I'm not trying to trying to sell him, but I think he, you know, he I think he of almost all the Spurs players now would fit into you could see him fitting into other teams better than I think, for example, Deli Alley, who I think some other who I think some of Spurs, you know, some of the biggest teams in Europe wouldn't, don't quite know what they would do with. And that's really like Son's, that's one of Son's great skills, right? Is that kind of like, that intelligence and adaptability that he's shown in his career. He plays really effectively in a position that pretty much every team plays. Like every team would have the use for a really effective wide forward who's incredibly athletic and in unbelievable shape. Like that's just a prototype that everyone is keen on. And he can withstand tear gas. Exactly, yeah. It was good to know, isn't it, just in case. You never know, it could be useful. <laughs> anyway, thank thank you very much, uh, James and Charlie and producer Tom. That's all we've got time for on this week's podcast. If you've got anything that you would want us to discuss on a future podcast, please tweet us. Um, otherwise, we'll be back next week when hopefully we'll be slightly closer to a return of Premier League football. Mm-hmm.